All right. Well, everybody's settling down. Just a reminder of the announcements. On Monday night is when I teach the church history course here for Chafer Seminary from 6.30 to 9.30. Now, just to confuse you, because there was the potential of my going to Kiev and rescheduling it for this Friday, I have already pre-recorded next Monday night's lesson and I haven't decided whether I'm going to do the next one tomorrow or not. Don't get me started on all of the stuff that's going on on the airlines and their irrationality, but they've made it almost impossible to fly through Europe. And um, so that's all I'm going to say about that. But So the pro- likelihood that I will be going anywhere Friday is uh, slim and none. Okay, the next men's prayer breakfast is on Saturday, February 19th, or February, that should be February 13th, that still isn't right in the announcement, it's February the 13th, it is the deacons meeting the day, always the Saturday before the church annual congregational meeting on the 14th, so men's prayer breakfast is February 13th, annual Prayer, uh, church congregational meeting February 14th, immediately following the morning worship service. And then the ladies' prayer brunch will be on Saturday, February the 20th at 10.30 with our special guest speaker, Diana Severance. The Chafer Conference is coming up March 8th through the 10th, and we're looking forward to having plenty of volunteers to deal with all the things that we need to deal with. And if things get straightened out on in terms of a lot of details, then we hope to be able to take a trip to Israel May 30th uh, to June 12th. I know people keep sending me stuff with all kinds of questions. Until Israel gets the COVID thing under control, and they've made massive efforts to do that, and they have vaccinated over a million people, have had both the first and second shots, so that they, they are desperately trying to reach herd immunity, by the end of March so that they can reopen the 1st of April. But until we get there, no one knows what the conditions are going to be. Um, at this stage, uh, no one, nobody knows. So I don't think anybody's going to be requiring vaccinations. They may be requiring a test. I don't know if they're going to be requiring us to wear masks over there. If they require us to wear masks on the bus and while we're over there, I'm not going to go. <laughs> Okay, that, that y'all can go by yourself, but I'm not going to go over there and wear a mask everywhere in Israel. Trust me. So there, there are, after the last week of dealing with the airlines trying to go to Kiev and all the stuff going on there, my patience is just about as thin as it can possibly be with the airlines and all this COVID stuff. So uh, I don't know what's going to happen, but we hope that things will get worked out. If not... We'll go the next year. All right, so that's it for our announcement. So after all that, we're going to need to have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all reorient our thinking and, if necessary, confess sin and get right with the Lord so we can maximize our time in the Word this evening. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful that we have you to come to. You are our rock, our fortress. You are our strong tower. You are our bulwark, our shield. That we know that as we live in the devil's world and we go throughout the, all of the different things that are happening around us and the uncertainties and vagaries of life seem to be uh, exponentially increased during this time, we know that nothing changes with you. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your plan has been the same. It has not changed. And uh, you will allow that which you will allow in order to bring about the greatest glory for yourself and to emphasize the fact that there is no hope. There is no meaning. There is no purpose. There is no stability at all in life apart from you. You are our foundation stone and the rock upon which our lives are grounded because that rock is Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of the church. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that we might be strengthened and encouraged 
that we might recognize that you have a plan even in the darkest of times, as we see in this period of the judges in Israel, and that we can still have hope, we can have a positive outlook, we should not let that which goes on around us affect our mental attitude and our stability, and that is indeed the test right now, is that we focus upon you, get rid of all these external distractions that uh, get in the way of our mental attitude, stability, and focus upon you, which is the way it always should be. So we thank you for this test and those other tests that teach us to trust you. And we ask that you enlighten our minds to what we study this evening related to the book of Judges and the period of the Judges, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, tonight we're going to look at another general overview type introductory message on the book of Judges and the period of the Judges, understanding these uh, these important themes. Last time we looked at the context of the book of Judges, fitting it within the biblical history of Genesis through Joshua to understand uh, the flow of what is going on uh, in God's plan and purpose for for Israel. In the first lesson, we did an overview of the uh, uh, 21 chapters in Judges, and tonight we're going to drill down a little bit on that which is the theme of this uh, of this book that is stated in Judges 21:25, and that is that there is no king in Israel, and the implications of that. And what we're going to see uh, again and again as we go through this is there's a rejection of authority. And when we reject authority in our lives, starting with the authority of God and the authorities that God has established, then the end result is always instability. The end result is always chaos because once we deny the existence of God, just think about the implications of God, of that. When we deny the existence of God at that point, Romans says we're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. What that means is we're creating our own truth. We're creating our own alternate reality. And that starts at that point. And to some degree, whenever we operate on the sin nature, we're operating on this fantasy world that somehow uh, God really isn't in control. I don't have to trust him. I can find life and meaning and purpose somewhere other than God. And I can find hope in the details of his creation rather than in having an intimate relationship with him and his his person and if I don't do that, then I'm denying reality, the very foundation and structure and creator of reality. And so I can't have any kind of stability if I'm not living in a realistic world and have a mindset that is based on reality. And so once we reject the, that authority structure that's established by God from the very beginning, then we start living in just a fantasy world. Judges twenty-one, twenty-five says, In those days there was no king in Israel. And as I pointed out last time and tonight, that that's not just stating the fact that this is written at some time later, after, probably after Saul has become king, because the implication here is telling the readers that back in that period there wasn't a king. That implies that at the time it's written, there is a king. And so it's early in the monarchy, probably written during the time of Saul. But that's not the, the point. The point is that in terms of the flow of God's plan for Israel, during this time, God was the king. It was a theocracy. God set himself up, and we'll look at some of that uh, this evening. And so when God's authority as king and God's authority that would lie behind the king when he, there was a king that he chose, then there would, be, there would be stability. And so what he is showing is that when there's this rejection of God as the ultimate authority, then in its place, everybody is always doing what's right in their own eyes. I pointed that out last time. You go back to Eve in the garden when the serpent comes to her and says, did God really say he's, he's, 
He's putting her in a position where she has to decide whether what God said is true or not. And so she she is suddenly being forced to put herself as as the judge to determine if God is right or not. And at that point, she's already on that slippery slope that will lead to sin, that she is thinking, I have to determine, is God really have my best interests in mind? So she's deciding what to, what is right in terms of her own uh, frame of reference. Three other times in Judges 17.6, in Judges 18.1, and in Judges 19.1, the writer says that there was no king in Israel in those days. This is heavily emphasized. If you've gone through the courses I've taught on Bible study methods, in the first stage of Bible study methods, you have the stage of observation. And there are a lot of different things to look for in observation. One of the things to look for is repetition. And whenever God the Holy Spirit repeats a verse or repeats a phrase several times in the same context, then you know that that is like a bold face with bright lights shining on it. That is the way that he is emphasizing something, and uh, uh, the repetition is to get our attention, to pay attention to something. And so four times in these last few chapters of Judges tells us that we really need to pay attention to this because that's what he's illustrating throughout this this book. And so that's the... That's the whole thesis in Judges, is that when we reject the authority of God, it destroys our personal life, but it's not just about us. See, that's the little trick in our sin nature. It wants us to say, you know, you can get away with this sin because it's just about you. But sin and the rejection of God's authority in any of our lives not only impacts our own spiritual life, but it corrupts a a marriage, it corrupts a family, it corrupts a city, a town, a country, a nation, a culture. All of those become corrupted, and that's what is being illustrated here, is that when we have an apostate, anti-God, relativistic culture, which is what we have, it changes everything. Can you imagine Your grandparents, born in the late 19th century, for some of you that may mean your great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents, can you imagine taking somebody that was born in the 1880s or 1890s and bringing them forward 130 or 40 years to 2021? They would be absolutely flabbergasted at where we are, they would be so upset and angry, offended. I can't imagine the response because they would see a culture that they had never seen before. And nothing that exists today under the guise of freedom is what they ever imagined because they understood that freedom, for freedom to function It has to be, first of all, under authority, and second, it has to have personal responsibility and accountability for the decisions that we make in life. And the more we get into moral relativism, the more those two things have disappeared. And so we have a culture and a world today that is degenerate, that is depraved, that is... uh, where a lot of criminality is just simply overlooked. Because if we were to truly prosecute all criminality, we wouldn't have any place to put all the criminals. And we have lost a sense of absolutes and living according to those, uh, living according to those absolutes. So once we get, get into a moral relativism, Judges teaches that it transforms worship practices. We've seen a radical transformation in what takes place within the walls of a church in this country in the last 40 years. My parents, if you were to take them from 1960 to now, they would not recognize what goes on in in churches today. They They would be offended by what goes on in churches under the guise of 
of Christianity. And you see, that's what happened in Israel because they start off and they don't have the temple, but they have the tabernacle. And they have the guidelines of the tabernacle and under Joshua and under his generation, that is where worship took place was at the tabernacle following the feast days and all of the laws laid down in Israel. And within a generation or two, what's ha- what happens? You see the these these groves up in the trees where they are building these worship sites for the Baals and the Asherah. And it is a place where they have uh, pagan orgies in the name of spirituality and prosperity seeking after God. Worship changed radically because of moral relativism. Also, we see a change in the role of men and women in society. Now, some of those changes might have been helpful, but the framework within which they came goes back to the concept of a right thing done for wrong reasons in a wrong way is wrong. And that is exactly what has happened because the underlying framework is that men and women are interchangeable. I have taught this for 40 years, and I was saying in the back in the 70s that where this ultimately goes is where you can go in and get surgeries, and you can be a man one day and a woman the next day, and being a man or a woman has nothing to do whatsoever to do with what's going on on the physical side of your body. That's what comes out of the presuppositions of the feminism of the mid-20th century is that women can do everything. They didn't say some things a man can do. They said women can do everything a man can do. We don't need men. That was the radical feminism of the, and they can be pastors and they can be this and they can be that. But the Bible says, no, women can be a lot of things, but they can't be pastors. There's some things they can't be. They couldn't be a priest under the Mosaic law. There are distinctions in the roles that God assigned to males and females. But under paganism, that gets blotted out because God no longer speaks to what makes a man a man and what makes a woman a woman. So true biblical masculinity is lost and true biblical femininity is lost because now everybody is just the accident of an electro- electrical discharge on a mass of protoplasm at some time uh, millions of years ago. And so we all come from that same blob of protoplasm, so it doesn't make any difference. You can be anything you want to be, man, woman, or one of 72 other genders. Take your pick. It's absurd. But once you grant the presupposition that we're all just the product of time plus chance, we're all just accidents of something, then we can be anything that we want to be because we're the ones who determine reality. There's no one, there is no one else. Not only is there the change in, in marriage and in the family, but you can have families where you have two husbands or two wives. You can have one single parent. And the Bible says if you want to have stability in a nation, there needs to be two parents. One is a male, one is a female, and they need to recognize the role distinctions and they need not use their sin nature as a justification for tyranny and abuse of the other one. And if that's not followed, then you will not have a healthy society, a healthy culture, or a successful nation, or a successful family. So this is what happens. A culture gets transformed from the inside out based on moral relativism because now each one determines their reality. And you can have your reality and I can have my reality, but if you say something that contradicts my sense of reality, then I'm going to be offended and angry. And I have to stop you from, from saying something different because when my reality is, is challenged, then, then my world is shaken. So I, I can't let you have the freedom to express your opinion about reality if it's going to shatter my view of reality. 
And that's where we are today, the absolute breakdown in being able to allow people to have the freedom of different opinions without those who disagree with them just absolutely going berserk and going off on them, shouting and yelling and screaming and or having uh, t- temper tantrums like Antifa and Black Lives Matter and any number of other uh, groups that are out there. It's a complete rejection of authority. And that's what we see in the book of Judges. We see how it affects leadership and the deterioration of leadership from one generation to the other, from the beginning with Othniel to the end with with Samson. And so we have to understand this in terms of its general context. And part of that context is understanding that what has happened is they are assimilating to the culture of the world around them. So what I want to do is to start off with some of the things that God said to Israel and to the forefathers uh, early on. So let's look at what God said to Abram in Genesis chapter 15. This is in the context of the Abrahamic covenant, the first time that we really have the covenant being discussed and laid down. It is summarized in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, but this is when God is articulating the details of the covenant. And he says to Abram in verse 13, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not there. So as part of the covenant, he is predicting and telling Abram what will happen in the future. They will be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. He's talking about Egypt and will serve them, their slavery in Egypt, and they will afflict them 400 years. So God is saying that there's going to come a time when your descendants are going to be taken out of the land of Israel. They're going to go somewhere else. They're going to be enslaved to another people, and that's going to last approximately 400 years. He's not being specific here. And in verse 14, he says, And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Well, that makes sense because in the Abrahamic covenant, God says, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who uh, disrespect you, I will judge harshly. That's more of a literal sense of the the two different words used for cursing there in uh, Genesis 12, 3. And so he judged Egypt rather harshly, just about destroyed the nation. Nothing was heard from them for another three or four hundred years. It took that long for them to rebuild their civilization. He says in verse 15, Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. Talking to Abram, uh, that is a reference to his dying and his bones would be gathered and placed in the graves with his fathers. It has a sort of a literal sense. You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. So in the fourth generation, uh, after they are enslaved, they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, that's the sentence I want to focus on. Because there is a purpose to what God is doing among the nations. And God is saying that I, in my forbearance, in my patience, I am giving these people who are living in that land enough time to either turn to me or to completely destroy themselves in immorality. And so he just summarized all of these different people that lived in the area we now know of as Israel as Amorites. Uh, Later, they'll primarily be called Canaanites. But as we'll see in these other verses, they are really composed of a number of different uh, people groups. Now, this takes place with with this announcement to uh, Abraham. This takes place in about, I would say, about 2060, 2100, no, it'd be about about 2060 B.C. Abram is born 2166. He's 100 years old when Isaac is born, so this is, that would be 2066, and this is a few years before that, so this is about 2086 or so before uh, B.C. His grandson Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, 
Jacob, we know, moves the family to Egypt at the time that Joseph has been elevated to be the second in command over Egypt in order to provide a haven of protection for the nation, but also to isolate them from other nations so that they are not going to assimilate. That's always been a problem with the Jews is that trend towards assimilating to the surrounding culture. And this was what was happening with the sons of Jacob is they were marrying Canaanite women and they were adopting their idolatrous practices and all of the uh, horrible things that were going on in Canaan at that time. And so God says, okay, I got to get you away from that influence and we're going to bring you to a place where uh, the people hate you and despise you and won't even eat in the same room that you're in. And that will keep you from assimilating to to their culture. And so in uh, 1876, uh, Jacob takes the family and they go to Egypt. And this date is the date as a book that uh, from Abraham to Paul by Andrew Steinman that deals with a uh, clarification, I'm not going to say a revision, but a clarification of a lot of chronology and dealing with a lot of uh, chronological problems. And uh, he does a a fascinating job. Uh, Doug Petrovich, who spoke here last year, Eugene Merrill, who was an Old Testament, one of the best most conservative Old Testament professors at Dallas Seminary in his book, Kingdom of Priests. All of these agree 1876 is when Jacob brings his sons into Egypt. And 400 years later is 1476. Now, the 400 years was, as I said earlier, an approximation. Uh, Later, they will use the more precise term, 430. So if you subtract 30 from 1476, you get 1446. That's when the exodus occurred. So God is fairly precise in the way that he is using, using numbers. So the exodus occurs in 1446. This is also affirmed by conservatives. This is called the early date. Liberals come along and they say, no, 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 no. It wasn't 1446. It was about 1250 or maybe a little later, 1230, when Ramses was the pharaoh. Anybody heard of Ramses being the pharaoh in Egypt during the uh, time of the Exodus? That's what Cecil B. DeMille said. Okay, everybody goes along. Well, Ramses, well, that's because in the early 1800s, when their the Egypt, Egyptology is first coming along, they discover all this wealth and glory, the conquests of Ramses, and they say, well, that Pharaoh in the Bible, he was all of those things, so that must apply to Ramses. And so they made this connection which wasn't correct. And, uh, in fact, there are a lot of conservatives who aren't really even sure that 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 it's in the 18th dynasty that the exodus took place. Now, most of these guys go along with that, but uh, some years ago, I did not make this particular uh, pastor's conference, but George Meisinger brought in about five or six different conservative Bible-based Egyptologists. They all picked a different pharaoh from the intermediate periods when nobody really knows very much about them. Because if you think about it, when the ten plagues are over with, Egypt's infrastructure has been absolutely and totally destroyed. All of their crops, all of their herds, all of their flocks, they've been decimated. There's nothing left. The Bible doesn't mention Egypt again for over 300 years, almost 400 years. It's not until you get to the time of Solomon. Solomon is about, he comes to the throne about 979. That's when he builds the temple. So let's say roughly 980. Okay, how long is it from uh, 1446 to 980? It's about 500 years. That's a long time. Egypt has not been a major player on the world stage for that long. It took that long for them to recover from the, from the Ten Commandments. So I've always been extremely hesitant to, to identify the Pharaoh of the, of the Exodus. I think there are enough questions 
about the chronology to have a certain level of doubts. It, it, but I know that a lot of conservatives will put it in the 18th dynasty, and they have their arguments, and I'm w- willing to say, okay, maybe that's true. But I'm not going to get in pulpit and say it's and name the Pharaoh and say, yeah, that, that was Thutmose the third. I think that's dangerous because then if it's discovered that it wasn't, then you've hung a lot of doctrine on the wrong person. So we can't be absolutely certain. First Kings 6, 1 tells us that in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, he began to build the house of the Lord. So we know that that is in 979. So he's been, that's his fourth year, so we're at 983, and uh, go back to whatever it is. You add it all together, and it goes back to 1446. It goes back to somewhere in there. I didn't put all those numbers in there. But it adds up to 1446. Forty years after they're in the desert, they cross the Jordan in 1406 B.C., In 1400, six years later, they've completed the major part of the conquest. They've defeated Jericho, Ai, they've defeated the northern confederacy of Canaanite armies and the southern confederacy. In six years, they are in control of the major trade routes. They're in control of the major cities. They still have a huge mopping up operation to go through. By 1379, some 21 years later, the last of Joshua's generation dies. This is when things begin to really fall apart. We'll get into that in the first chapter and second chapter of of, uh, Judges. And the first oppression comes from a Mesopotamian king named Kushan Rishathayim. So that just gives us a little bit of the introductory time frame, and we'll build on that chronology as we go go forward. So the, the first thing I really want you to notice is that God had told Abram that they're going to be Uh, slaves for 400 years plus in a foreign land. Then he's going to bring them back, and it has something to do with the Amorites' sinfulness coming to completion. God's giving them enough time to be fully corrupt. Second thing that we need to recognize is God's promises to Moses. So we've gone from Abraham in roughly 2080 B.C. Now we're at... Moses in 1446 to 1450 uh, B.C. Because God first appears to Moses over in uh, Midian, and you've got a couple of years there, so the whole story there leads up to the Exodus. And when that begins, when the first plague comes, that's in 1446, and all of the plagues take place during that year, and then they're uh, uh, told to leave finally. And God makes various promises to Moses and reminds him, first of all, promises he made to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And those are in Exodus 3.8, Exodus 3.17, Exodus 6.15, Exodus 13.5, and 13.11. But in Exodus 23.23, he's telling Moses what is going to take place in the future. He says, for my angel, this would be the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Stalactites and Stalagmites. Okay, so you see the Canaanites aren't just one ethnic group. They're made up of, notice the first one is the Amorites. They would be the most numerous. That's who God mentioned back to Abraham back in Genesis 15. But you also have the Hittites, whose area primarily was to the north up in the area of, of Anatolia or modern-day Turkey. And then you had others. You had the Perizzites, you had the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Where did the Jebusites live? In Jebus, you got another name for Jebus? Jerusalem, Salem, Jerusalem. Uh, David did not, uh, the Israel did not take Jebus or, or Jerusalem until David conquered the city of the Jebusites. So that's the Jebusites. So they're all part of this culture that generally is going to be described as the Canaanites. 
Uh, and God says he is going to take them into the land and he's going to cut off all these people. In verse, uh, in verse 28 of that chapter, Exodus 23:28, God says, And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. So that seems to suggest something that God is doing in a more supernatural way to create fear in the hearts of the, the, the people of the land. And he did. Because we know from the conversations that that the, the the two spies had who went into Jericho with 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 uh, uh, Rahab, that Rahab said, "Oh, we know all about what God did to the Egyptians, and we've been scared to death ever since." Okay, and so that fear, I think that's what God is talking about here in verse twenty-eight, that He's going to engage in psychological warfare against the Canaanites when they hear about what happened in Egypt. In Exodus 33, 2, he says, And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. In 34:11, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now, the reason I reminded you of this is that when they got to the border of the promised land at Kadesh Barnea, and Moses sent the 12 spies in. They misinterpreted Moses' command. Moses didn't send them in to see if they could take the land. That's what they thought their mission was. See, you've got to pay attention to the words of Scripture. The words of Scripture are that God is going to give them that land. There was no doubt. It didn't matter how big they were, how many there were, or what their cities were like, or what their military technology was. God had already promised that that the Canaanites were theirs. They were not going into the land to determine if they could take it. They were going to go into the land just to spy out how wonderful this new land was that God was giving to them. But ten of them misinterpreted scripture and they were afraid because of the circumstances around them and only two Joshua and Caleb said I will we will trust God he's given us this land why are we afraid and they understood that the battle was the Lord's now that is great application for us today because we look around the world today and there are a number of circumstances that can be uh, quite daunting if we focus on the circumstances but we don't want to be like uh, like the ten spies, we don't want to be like Peter focusing on the waves. We want to be uh, like Moses and like David and like um, uh, others who trusted in the Lord and recognize that the battle is the Lord's. Now, God took him into the land, but right before he went into the land, Moses reminded them of the law and that is a, a sort of a retelling of the law, but it is a reminder of what God has said and how God said they should live when they get into the land. Remember, for there to be a nation, you have to have three things. You have to have a people. You have to have a piece of real estate for the country that has borders that are protected and defined. When you don't have borders that are protected or defined, you can't have a nation. And that is why you have passages such as uh, uh, Genesis chapter 11 dealing with the Tower of Babel, talking about how God determined the borders of the nations. And Paul refers to that in the New Testament in Acts 17, uh, talking about how God established the borders for the peoples. God is the one who initiated nations. Nations and this idea of making Christian nationalism a pejorative is just the devil's own lie because God is the one who established nations and nations are for the survival and protection of the human race. And biblical nationalism is God's plan until the Lord Jesus Christ returns and establishes his kingdom because it is to prevent internationalism because internationalism is seen from the Tower of Babel on is always the basis for the human race coming together to try to solve all of man's problems without God. And so God has uh, uh, put 
uh, put limitations on what man can do, and that is why he divided the languages and established the nations. But God's plan for Israel did include having a king, a human king, but not from the beginning. And we know this from Deuteronomy chapter uh, 17, where God gives certain specifics about the king. He says, when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Pay attention to that language because that is exactly what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 8. They say to Samuel, give us a king so we can be like all the nations around us. Now, who are the nations around him? Well, to their southwest, they had Egypt. What do we know about the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt? The Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was thought of as an incarnation of God, of one of their gods. And you see the power when you look at the Sphinx and you see the head of the uh, Pharaoh on the Sphinx. The body is that of a lion, which speaks of majesty and power. And so the Pharaoh is making a claim there to have that kind of power. He is the most powerful one. You also look at if you go into uh, the Valley of the Kings and you go into the various tombs of the different uh, pharaohs are just in, just incredible uh, depictions and mosaics all along the walls of, of just all kinds of different things. But you always know who the Pharaoh is. Because the Pharaoh, of all the images of humans, the Pharaoh is five times taller than anybody else because he's not a normal human. He is a divine king. You go to the northeast of Israel and you are in the Mesopotamian area, and their kings had uh, were attributed uh, deity but they are not an incarnation of the gods. It's sort of something that is granted to them along with kingship. Later on, when you have the Roman Empire, when you became Caesar, you became a god. You just became another of many different gods, and you were to be worshipped as god. But when you're in Israel, there's a difference. But in these other nations, there is a an autocracy. The king has absolute power, and that is why he is given the attributes of deity. When you get into the church age, what you see is states, especially in the last two or three hundred years, where states want to take on uh, the role of a god. They have messianic pretensions. They are going to solve the problems of poverty. They're going to solve the problems of sickness. They're going to solve the problems of bad education. They are going to solve all of the problems of the world. And you see this even in the UN, and it makes tremendous messianic prediction, uh, uh, messianic claims and pretensions. Uh, they have uh, the the verse from Isaiah 2 referring to the world peace that will come under the Messiah that uh, you will beat your uh, spears into pruning hooks and your, slow, uh, your swords into plowshares and men will learn war no more. That is engraved in the stone over the entryway to the United Nations. They are claiming that they will do what only the Messiah can do. And you have a huge statue out there where they have uh, a, a man beating a sword into uh, a plowshare. Now, to, to ignore the symbolism there is to blind yourself to reality that the UN is our present form of internationalism and globalism is the message of the day. And that, that does not say that nations cannot have treaties and trade and all that. We saw that fine, but it is saying that the, they are not coming together in order to solve all the problems of the world. There, there is that difference to make that messianic claim that will only happen when the Messiah returns and establishes his kingdom. 
And so this is part of the underlying issues in the political theater of our day. Uh, One of the reasons I firmly believe that you can argue all day long about this thing that Trump did and that thing he did that you don't like or you don't agree with. I haven't had a president that I agreed more than 50% with in my lifetime, okay? They're all human, and they all have failings, and they all have limitations. But I think there was one thing that President Trump argued for, and that was America first. And whatever flaws and failures he had in the way he articulated that, he understood that America had to defend her, her national identity and integrity. And that angered the internationalists and the globalists incredibly. And that is the root of a lot of the antagonism to him. More so, I think, than anything else. He didn't have a great personality, but I'm enough of a student of history to know that there are a lot of presidents who didn't have a great personality. There are a lot of leaders that don't have great personalities, and they're very offensive in a lot of things that they have have said and done. Uh, But I think that the real core issue was an ideological issue that he stood against the flow towards globalism that has been dominant in America for two or three hundred years. And there was the sense on the left that that was within their grasp and they just had a huge temper tantrum. But that's just my interpretation and picture. We are, we know that that's the, that's the flow of history because when the time comes and the church is removed through the rapture, and God allows Satan to put his man in charge, we will have a globalist international government. And we know that's where, where it's headed, and it's, one of its centers will be in Babylon. There's always that battle, that conflict in the Bible between Jerusalem and Babylon. And when you get to Revelation, the kingdom that the Antichrist has is identified with Babylon and a literal Babylon, I believe. So God has a role for for a king in the nation, but not like all the other nations. So in verse 14, when they say, I want to have a king like all the other nations, they want to give up their freedom and have a king like the Pharaoh, a king like those kings in in Rome, the kings in the Mediterranean, I mean, Mesopotamian area, that these are the kings that have an autocratic divine power. Deuteronomy 17 goes on to say, You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. So you may want a king that you choose, but the one you're going to set over you is the one God chooses. Mark that distinction because that that contrast is what comes up in 1 Samuel 8. Uh, One from among your brethren you shall set a king over you. So there's two stipulations Number one is he's got to be an Israelite. He's not a foreigner. He's one of your brethren. The other one is given down in verse 19. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it, or verse 18. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. God, he's going to have a witness. The priests are going to bring him the scrolls, and he's going to make his own handwritten copy of the entire Pentateuch, the law of Moses, the Torah. And that's so he learns it, so it changes the way he thinks. And that worked for about four kings in the southern kingdom and no kings in the northern kingdom, uh, plus, of course, David and Solomon in his in his early years. But the rest of the kings of the northern, all the kings of the northern kingdom and all but four in the southern kingdom went against God. And they all followed in the sins of idolatry. They all wanted to do things according to their own ideas, their own thoughts, their, uh, did what was right in their own eyes. So God has two stipulations. He's got to be an Israelite, number one, and he's got to copy the law. And the purpose for that is in verse 20, that his heart not be lifted up above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left. He's got to understand absolutes. He's got to understand he's under my authority. That if you don't have a king who understands that he's under the authority of God, then you're going to be in trouble because he will make himself the ultimate authority. He's not answerable to law. He's not answerable to God. 
but he's answerable only to himself or uh, his uh, uh, his allies in power. So this is God's 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 plan that He has established that there will be a king in the future. So initially. God was going to be the king of Israel, but he did make a provision for a future king. But God is rejected, and that's the purpose of the book of Judges, is to show what happens when God is rejected, when God, who is the source of absolute justice. And we think, how can that be? You have the Mosaic Law. It is perfect justice. But man does not want perfect justice because perfect justice is always oriented to God, but it's not oriented to me. And the same thing is going to happen in the millennial kingdom because Jesus will come back and Jesus will establish a perfectly righteous reign. He is the prince of righteousness and he will establish perfect justice on the earth and he will reign for a thousand years. And at the end of that thousand years, Satan is going to be released from prison. So Satan and the demons won't be influencing human beings at all. And the purpose for that is to show that the problem really isn't somebody else. The problem is us and the sin nature. And what happens, as hard as it is to believe, in the perfect environment where you have a perfect ruler, a perfect government, the people will be deceived and led into a revolt at the end of that period. And myriads upon myriads are going to follow Satan in an attempt to overthrow the Lord Jesus Christ as the king of the earth. And God is going to destroy them. He's going to incinerate them, vaporize them in a heartbeat with brimstone and ashes. And they're going to be gone. But God is, is pointing this out even in the Old Testament, that when he is rejected, the result is absolutely disastrous. And so that is seen through this period. And we come to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And 1 Samuel chapter 8 is also uh, a, one of the most significant chapters on political theory in all of the Bible. It was cited numerous times by our uh, founding fathers in their deliberations, as well as a passage we went, just went to uh, recently uh, there in, in uh, Deuteronomy 17. Uh, all of these passages were, were in the thinking of our founding fathers, and we know that because a uh, former professor of political science here in Houston, I don't know anything about him, his religious convictions or anything, but he had his students over a period of 10 years in the early years of using computers input all the data from diaries and letters and sermons and, I mean, not sermons, but political speeches and other things uh, when political leaders would identify the source of what they were, what they were saying. If they were quoting Montesquieu or quoting Locke or quoting the Bible, they would say so. And... 33% of their citations were from the Bible. Number two was from John Locke, and he was around 20 or 21%, but about half of his citations were paraphrases from the Bible. So they understood the Bible, and they thought biblically. And uh, so when they, they were very familiar with this passage, and in Lutz's book that deals with all of this, he lists all the different passages, most of them were from the Old Testament. They were from Deuteronomy, they were from Exodus, they were from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. And we look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, what happens at the beginning is it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Uh, but that didn't go well because his sons were uh, products of their culture. They were antinomian as well. They're, this is still in the same period of the judges. And they did what was right in their own eyes. And his sons, verse 3 says, did not walk in his ways. They went uh, turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons don't walk in your ways. And what did they say then? Now, at the end of this verse, at verse 5, they say, Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Isn't that what God predicted over in Deuteronomy 17, when you want to have a, nation, a, God, a king like all the other nations? 
that's exactly what they want. They want to be like everybody else. One of the things that made the United States of America distinct is they were going to do something different. They weren't going to be like Europe anymore. They weren't going to be like the other nations. But that is not what we've heard in the last 10 years. We've heard that we want to do things like Europe. Uh, and, we, and if so, we will end up being like Europe. But we were set up to be different, to be distinct, and that's because it came, all of our original political philosophy came out of the Bible, came out of a Judeo-Christian uh, worldview. And so they don't, their thinking was not to be like all the other nations, but that's the thinking of, of Israel. They wanted to be like all the other nations and have a government like all the other nations. And in 1 Samuel 8, 9, God in 8, 8, God says, don't be upset with them, Samuel. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. That's our key to understand that the king the real king prior to this was God and not a human king. And they rejected God as their king. And so he says to Samuel in 8, 9, he says, Heed their voice, however you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. Now, this is the problem. Human government as an institution was established by God in Genesis uh, chapter 9, verses 1 to 17 in the Abrahamic, I mean, excuse me, in the Noahic covenant. And in that covenant with Noah, God establishes the authority of, of humans to judge, to adjudicate criminality and to execute criminals to take their life. That's the most serious decision a human being can make. And that is the foundation of nations and of government. Now, what's interesting is in the last couple of years, I've been reading a lot of different writings by some Jewish, most of whom are Orthodox, not all of whom are Orthodox, uh, Jewish thinkers, intellectuals, who are writing on the subject of government and writing on the subject of nationalism. A very insightful book by Yoram Hazoni is a book called The Virtue of Nationalism. Now, you may not want to wade through that book, but what I suggest that you do is you go onto YouTube and you find the interview uh, where Ben Shapiro interviews Yoram Hazoni, two Orthodox Jews who were talking about the importance of nations. And Yoram Hazoni builds a biblical case. Now, he's not going to look at it quite the same way you and I do. I don't know if he actually believes in the historicity of Noah or the Tower of Babel. But he knows historically that the historical Jewish belief, the historic Judeo-Christian belief, and the belief of Western civilization is that those events were literal and historical, and that's the foundation of our law. Whether it actually happened or not, those events described in the Bible are the foundation of our view of nations and our view of government. And they build from this, and there's just a whole lot of, of these Orthodox Jews and others who are doing some insightful, insightful thinking about nations and government uh, based based on um, uh, based on this, and so um, Hazoni has also they had he started an organization a think tank dedicated to Edmund Burke and the Edmund Burke Society, I believe, is what it is called. And these guys get together, I get their emails, and they link to all kinds of papers that are being written, and they're just absolutely profound. If you want to learn to think through these issues, these are the people that you need to be reading, is, is on their understanding, because they, they are not coming at it from biblical authority in the same level that we are, but they're, they have that respect for the Bible as being the foundation for our views of, of, of government. And I've got another book uh, dealing with the politics of power written by some other conservative Jews. It's all about the development of political theory from 1 Samuel. 
Phenomenal stuff. I don't you may not agree with everything. I'm not saying that. They're, they're not exactly where we are, but they are very close. And it is because that whether they may not believe the Bible is the word of God like you and I do, but they believe that the Bible provides the foundation for the thinking of Western civilization and the stability of Western civilization. And so God warns Samuel, you've got to warn the people of what's going to happen if they give too much power to the king. And so what we see here is that there's this pendulum swing in human history between an autocracy, whether it's a dictator or a king or a, any form of government that takes all power to itself or whether it goes in the other direction where you overemphasize individual freedoms and everybody just becomes so fragmented that it leads eventually to anarchy and everybody doing what they think is right in their own eyes and it leads to collapse. And so you go back and forth between these, these, um, these extremes because the only thing that's going to really stabilize things is a perfect sinless king. And that doesn't work in the millennium, does it? Because what? You don't have a perfect, sinless population. And this is the problem with the whole social justice movement, is they're assuming that somehow sinless, corrupt people, because they deny total depravity and sin, that that, that they can bring in a perfect society. And, And they can't. And as a result of that, they don't put checks and balances on on those corrupt desires. And that's why we have three branches of government, is we have to have those checks and balances in order to protect against the, the corrupt desires of men to gain power for themselves. And even that is falling apart because we live in a fallen world. And if you don't believe in total depravity... You'll, you'll always be frustrated. So there's the warning that what's going to happen is if you give all this power to the king, he's going to have a draft. He's going to draft your sons and bring them into the military, and he's going to organize and have a big, big army, and then he's going to take your daughters and bring them in to run his uh, uh, run the, the kitchens and everything related to running the government. And what you end up with is a top-heavy government with a huge bureaucracy that is self-destructive. And that's also where, where we are today. And at the end of all of this, in First Samuel eight eighteen, he says, And you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself. That's Saul. God, in his permissive will, allowed it. But Saul is the one they chose for themselves because he looked like a king. He stood a head and shoulders above everybody else. Your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, and how is God going to respond to their prayer? And the Lord will not hear you in that day because you have asked amiss. And so this, this is the problem, that because of sin and because of corruption, there will always be this, this problem in, uh, in human, human government. So God warns of the abuse of power, and this provides us with a framework for understanding what is going to happen in the book of Judges as we see this this um, indictment, first of the leadership, the judges, Othniel, Deborah, Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson. And then we're going to see the indictment of the priests and indictment of the people. And the bottom line is that when sin is allowed to run amok, there's no order, there is, there is no, uh, there's no future. There's just disorder, chaos, and collapse. What's the solution? See, I should have taught this before I taught Samuel. The solution comes in the first chapter of Samuel. Hannah, if you remember, prays that she can have a son, and she recognizes in her psalm in 1 Samuel 2 that that son that God gives her is going to be instrumental in bringing in the Messiah. And the Messiah, of course, is going to come through the line of David. 
and that her son will anoint the that that kingly line and she has an understanding of that and so i like to look at this whole thing as this is the gospel you start off showing the depravity of man in judges and where that leads and then you see the grace of god in providing a solution uh, through the Messiah, through the Davidic line that comes in the books of Samuel. And so all of this then develops out of an understanding of Deuteronomy, which sets the stage at the end of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, 29, and 30, that uh, God outlines that if you're disobedient to me, these are the judgments I will bring on the nation, and if you are obedient to me, these are the blessings that I will bring. And the book of Judges is an illustration of those curses and those blessings. And so we'll come back next time to begin to sort of work our way through the first chapter of Judges. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things, to see that the truths that are illustrated here in Judges, the the history that took place is repeated again and again through one cycle after another all through history. For those who humble themselves under your mighty hand will be lifted up. Yet those who are arrogant and uh, raise themselves up against you and make war against you, you will make war against them and destroy them. And Father, for us who are living here in this difficult time, a time when the powers that be are hateful and antagonistic toward you, We know that there will be difficult times, but we trust in you. You are our rock. You are our redeemer. You are the same God who enabled Israel to survive through this dark ages of the judges, and you are the same God who will enable us to survive and to glorify you and to be a light in the midst of this wicked and perverse generation. We pray that we may be able to live up to that Uh, wonderful legacy that has been given to us and to honor and glorify you with our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.